Um, first of all, how about uh, if people down the back want to kind of cosy up and move a bit forward down the front here, that would be good. And then also, no? You want to stay up the back? Okay. Um, you will need to be able to see a Bible, okay? So whether it's digital or paper or whatever, it doesn't matter. But we are going to be digging into the scriptures today, and I want you to be able to see what we're getting at. And then before we actually get into the talk, while you're getting Bibles out, I actually have something quite different to do. Um, Daniel and Sarah Rudge uh, are part of this church, and um, I, I get to be, as Daniel said yesterday, their boss's boss. <laughs> um, but they're, they're part of the Power to Change family, and we're really privileged to have them in our family. Daniel and Sarah are on a team in Toowoomba, uh, which coach student leaders on campuses all around the country, and they are actually doing a fantastic job. We're seeing some wonderful fruit through their team, through the students that they coach on campuses all around Australia. I know Daniel actually coaches quite a few um, campuses and leaders, student leaders, uh, on campuses in Melbourne, uh, and that's, that's just going great guns, and we're seeing God at work there. So it's wonderful for us to have them on board. And uh, they, as many of you know, have been through some difficult times in the past couple of years. Um, it's, yeah, it's just been a tough road for them. And they have actually asked me uh, to say thank you to you, their church family, because they want to acknowledge that you have gathered around them and you have journeyed with them through some difficult times and you've been a comfort to them, you've been a strength to them, you've prayed for them, you've put arms around them and just journeyed with them. We want to thank you for that. They want to thank you for that. And so they've asked me on their behalf uh, to, um, to present to you a gift from them to your church. many of you would recognise the, the words love, serve and grow are the motto of Willowburn Church. Um, it's something that they have seen in you demonstrated to them and they just wanted to show you their appreciation. So, on your Daniel and Sarah. Okay, so can everybody see your Bible? And um, we're going to be using that soon <laughs> if you're not crying. Okay, good. Um, and... Um, so today we're going to be getting stuck into uh, a second look at Seek First the Kingdom of God. Um, those of you who were here yesterday, I, I said that I, I like our digging into the Word together to be fairly interactive. So we're going to do again a bit of an exercise. So turn to the person next to you. And what I'd like you to discuss with them are these three questions. What does Jesus expect of you? of each of us. Okay, what does Jesus expect? Just list some things that you think Jesus expects from you. And then secondly, who is the Holy Spirit to you? And lastly, if you get time, what's your favourite breakfast and why? <laughs> okay, turn to the person next to you. We'll take a couple of minutes. Just chat about those questions. Go for it. I'm hearing a big stack of pancakes with golden syrup and butter over here, so I guess it's time to move into it. So, <laughs> yum. Sounds good. <laughs> Hey, isn't it just an awesome privilege to journey with people uh, and to hear this morning of God's work in, uh, in young people's lives? What an absolute privilege, isn't it? I mean, really, this is church. This is what it's all about. And, and really, we could kind of stop the service here and just kind of dwell on what's already been said and prayed this morning. It's just beautiful to see the spirit at work in people's lives and to give thanks for that. But we're not going to. Um, <laughs> but it really does dovetail in beautifully because what I want to talk about, uh, you know, what we've heard this morning, what we've seen in, in baptism symbolises the start of somebody's relationship with Jesus. Uh, for many of them, that actual point has been some time in the past, but there's that symbolism in the act of baptism this morning. Well, what I want to talk about today uh, is perhaps... Perhaps the most important thing that I could share with anybody or live myself in how to live as a Christian moving forward with Jesus. Okay? And it's that nexus of what does Jesus expect of us and how does he expect us to achieve those things? And we're going to dig into that this morning. Uh, have you ever thought much about that? Uh, I expect that all of us have, but maybe 
put it all together, uh, Jesus' expectations of us, have you, have you kind of been thinking, yeah, Jesus wants me to be out there kind of sharing my faith, which we talked about yesterday, or maybe building into other people and helping them to grow in Jesus. Uh, living a godly life myself and, and seeking to overcome sin, uh, and deal with sinful habits in my lives. But have you ever gotten to that point where sometimes those expectations, those demands on us, they just feel like too much? They just feel like, I, I just can't do this. <laughs> you know, we've, you've heard lots over the, the past few months about seeking first the kingdom. And that's both within us, so our attitudes, our values, our thoughts, and it's also outwards in how we treat others. And uh, we focused yesterday on helping people into the kingdom by speaking out the kingdom. Well, does seeking first the kingdom ever just sound impossible? You know? do, you, do you ever get tired of trying to make ministry happen, perhaps in the church or with your neighbours or trying to reach your workmates? Do you ever get tired of trying to change your own sinfulness? Well, I want to look this morning about what Jesus' real expectations are of us and then how Jesus says we are to fulfill them. We're going to concentrate on chapters 14 through 15 of John's Gospel. So if you want to turn there with me, John's Gospel, chapters 14 through 16. <clears throat> So just while people are looking that up, who can tell me a few things about, uh, about this section of Scripture? Uh, where are we? What's going on? What, what's our setting here? Uh, tell me a bit about what Jesus is saying. Anybody? The Last Supper. The Last Supper. Okay. Yep. Jesus speaking intimately to his disciples about what it's all about. Yes. Yep. Anything else? The Holy Spirit is promised. The Holy Spirit is promised. Very good. And it's the Holy Spirit being promised is connected with Jesus saying, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going. Yep. Which was, he'd said it several ways and several times before, but and yet you get the impression the disciples are still surprised. Yep. All right. And that's our chapter 13 at the start of this great uh, talk. Uh, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and it, that little section starts off with Jesus showed his love for them in this, and he washed his disciples' feet, a great act of, of humility, and an example that he set them. He said, now you've seen what I've done, you too should do this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, th this is sometimes called the upper room discourse, a long talk, long section in John's gospel. Um, and it is the night before Jesus is betrayed and before he goes to the cross. Um, in many ways, this is kind of Jesus' farewell speech or his last opportunity to prepare his disciples for what's going to be happening over the next few days. And uh, it's, it's kind of a summation of everything he's been trying to teach them for the last three and a half years. Uh, packed into one night as kind of the, the last cram for the exam, okay? Uh, and there's, there's a lot of different themes that come out in these chapters, 14 through to the end of 16, and then in chapter 17 he prays. Um, Jesus says he's leaving. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming. He talks about serving others. He talks about prayer, persecution, abiding in Christ. And it's interesting, it's, it's not laid out like this topic, then that topic, then that topic, consecutive, kind of one after the other, and that's it. They're actually, these themes are actually, they pop up every now and again. They're interwoven in amongst one another. And so if you want to pick up what Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse on the Holy Spirit, for example, you have this piece and this piece and this piece and this piece and put it all together. Okay, so he, but it's interwoven. So Jesus' farewell speech. We're going to have a look at some of the expectations that Jesus has of his disciples and of us that he kind of lays on them in this farewell speech in these chapters. So what I want you to do, again in your pairs, I want you to pick one of these four sections of Scripture, just one. Okay, now some of them are just one verse, but others are a bit longer. Um, so as a pair, pick one of these, 
read it and dig into it a bit, chat about it. Okay, what is Jesus' expectation of us? And, and maybe dig into well, what does that mean? Uh, what is he talking about? Okay, spend a couple of minutes just talking about one of those. Don't everybody pick the first one just because it's a single verse? <laughs> okay. Now nobody will pick the first one. But anyway, pick one and have a look. Okay, let's start off with that first one, uh, chapter 14, verse 12. Who, had, who looked into that, that scripture passage? Yep, okay, so, so what's it about? What's, what's Jesus' expectation of us? No, okay. So just have a think about that for a second. Um, when Jesus says, you know, if, if you believe in me, if you follow me, then you will, do great, you will do what I have been doing. You'll be doing the works that I have been doing. Um, in fact, you'll do even greater works, or some translations have deeds, uh, than I have been doing. What do you think are the deeds or the works that popped into the disciples' minds as they heard him say that? What are some of the things that they've seen in the last through two, three years or so? Sorry, walking on water, healing the sick, preaching, feeding the 5,000, multiplying food, calming the storm. Raising the dead. Okay, top that. Turning over the money changes tables. Getting out of that alive was actually a miracle in itself. But yes, um, there, naturally we, we think of all the miracles and, uh, and that's, that is some of it. But then also there's all the, the teaching that Jesus has given, the way that he has demonstrated the love and the grace of God. Think of the woman at the well. Um, and also the wrath of God, turning the tables over in the temple, uh, demonstrating God's character. In fact, the deeds and the works of Jesus are really anything that point people to God. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to be doing those same deeds and works. In fact, even greater than those deeds. Well, that would have left them pondering, I think. It's like, wow, what's that going to look like? How's that going to happen? Okay, well, let's move on to the next one, um, chapter 14, verses 15, 21, and 23. Who had a look at those verses? Yep, Ben? We did. Yep. Summarize it? Three of us, we took the triplet. So what's it saying? <laughs> right. Good, good. So Jesus' expectation of us uh, is pretty up there, isn't it? He's, he's saying, do you love me? Do you obey my commands? Because those two questions are the same thing. Okay? If you really love me, you will obey my commands. And there's no qualifier on that. It's not some of them, not most of them. It's you will obey my commands. That's all of them. <laughs> okay. That's uh, up there as well. How about chapter 15, verse 8? Who looked into that one? Yep, Ben. Okay, so what's fruit about, do you think? Very good. Very good. Okay. So this, this first uh, half of chapter 15, uh, Jesus talks about fruit and fruitfulness several times. Uh, verse 8 is just one of those things. Now, when we think of fruit, uh, what, what do you think the disciples thought of? Uh, we might think of uh, the fruit of the Spirit, which is actually Paul's emphasis, so love, joy, peace, patience, etc., uh, and character stuff, <clears throat> and certainly that's in there. But as we look at John chapter 15, perhaps what does John, uh, or Jesus at this point, mean by fruit? We can see that um, in, in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 15, Jesus talks about loving one another. Okay, loving one another completely. And repeats it again in, in verse 17, talks about our love for one another. And then in chapter 17, Jesus talks about our unity together, one with another. Okay, so that love leading to, to unity. Uh, Jesus also talks a bit later in chapter 15 about mission. It's actually in the context of persecution, which is the next section. Uh, but Jesus talks about uh, the disciples going out and teaching others and testifying to what Jesus has done. Okay, so in other words, it's the, the picture of the disciples going out and doing mission is part of what Jesus means by fruitfulness. Okay, love for one another and effective mission, we might summarise that as. Okay, so, so far we've got 
Jesus expects us to do the deeds that he's been doing, in fact, even greater deeds than he's done, to obey him completely uh, as a demonstration of our love for him and to be fruitful, to love one another such that we are as unified as the Father and the Son and to be effective in mission. What's the last one? Uh, chapter 15, it was a longer section, so who dug into that? Yep, BJ. <clears throat> What's it about? Just summarise it. Yeah, don't read it. <laughs> what does Jesus expect of us? Bingo. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So there's this context of Jesus saying, as you get out there, expect persecution. Yeah. The the world has hated me. Guess what? It's going to hate you too. Okay. And and Jesus' kind of unspoken expectation in the midst of that persecution is he expects us to persevere, not to give up but to keep going, to keep teaching, to keep testifying, to keep getting out there. Okay, so he expects perseverance. And I've once again forgotten my PowerPoint to keep up. There we go. Deeds, obedience, fruitfulness, and perseverance in the midst of persecution. And you know what? I haven't even mentioned everything that's actually in these chapters. Well, how do you feel about all that stuff? Does that make you squirm a little? does me do we match up with that did the disciples and yet doesn't Jesus know his disciples doesn't he know me doesn't he know my frailties my sinfulness and yet he puts out these these high bar standard expectations of us do we just sort of turn around and say hey be realistic (laughs) Let's take a, a bit of a closer look at those verses again. John 14, verse 12 is what we looked at, but I'm going to expand the context there because uh, Jesus, when he says that you will do greater deeds than I have been doing, he then immediately goes on to say, because I am going back to the Father. What's that about? He then goes on to, to talk about prayer. When I'm back with the Father... You can ask anything, and I will grant it. And then in verse 16, he talks about he will send the counsellor, the Holy Spirit. So there's this sense that Jesus is saying, you know what? It's better for you if I go away. I'm going back to the Father, and when I've done that, you're going to be able to pray in new ways. Okay? And and get answers in new ways. And the counsellor is going to come. So... Doing greater things than Jesus did has got something to do with prayer and with the Holy Spirit coming. Okay, so let's just hold that in our minds as we move on to, what about this love equals obedience? Now, Jesus mentioned this kind of loving and therefore obeying thing three times. You think he's hammering on something here? Now, straight after the first one in verse 15 and the third one down in verse 23, Jesus immediately goes on to talk about, guess who? The Holy Spirit. The second one, I think he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit there because he gets interrupted. Okay, he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And then he gets a question from Judas, one of his disciples, uh, who asks him about, why aren't you showing yourself to the world? And he doesn't perhaps directly answer Judas's question there. He actually repeats his expectation. If you love me, you'll obey me, and the Father will come and dwell with you and all that sort of stuff. Now, that's actually a great way to answer the question. Because as we, as Jesus' disciples, go out, and demonstrate our love for Jesus by our obedience to his commands, that is Jesus revealing himself to the world. Okay? But I suspect if Judas had not interrupted Jesus at that point, I think at least twice and probably three times, Jesus would have gone straight from, if you love me, you'll obey me, but Holy Spirit. Okay? There's a direct connection there. I'm going to skip over fruit and fruitfulness for a second and just tackle the, uh, the perseverance one. In that longer section, second half of chapter 15 through into chapter 16, uh, Jesus 
mentions the Holy Spirit in the middle of that section, verses 26 and 27, and again after he's finished, uh, 16 verse 5 onwards, he actually has quite a larger section on the Holy Spirit who will come and teach us and all that sort of stuff. So again, we have this big expectation of, hey, it's going to be hard out there. We're going to face persecution. Jesus expects us to persevere in the midst of that. Bang, Holy Spirit. Twice. Talks about the Holy Spirit. So in these three chapters in which Jesus expects so much of us, it seems that the key to living the Christian life is something to do with the Holy Spirit. Now, we skipped a a section, didn't we? Uh, The first half of chapter 15, that fruitfulness bit. Have a quick look, those of you who may have read uh, that section particularly. That first half of chapter 15, does Jesus mention the Holy Spirit? Does Jesus mention the Holy Spirit? Uh Uh-oh. No, he doesn't. Does does that blow my theory out of the water? (laughs) How are we to be fruitful? How are we to love one another such that we're completely unified? How are we to be effective in mission? Well, this time Jesus doesn't actually directly name the Holy Spirit, but he talks a lot about abiding in him and he in us. Now, what's that all about? Have a think about that for a second. Just a chapter before... Jesus says, I'm out of here. I am going. And then he says, abide in me and me and you. What is that? How does that work? If you were one of the disciples, wouldn't you be sitting there going, how do I fit those two together? Well, here's where we get to do a little bit of fun detective work in the Bible, in the scriptures. Uh, the, The word in the original language that's translated remain in me or abide in me, Uh, is actually really concentrated in this first half of chapter 15. Uh, It's used about 17 times in the whole of John's Gospel, but nine of them are in this section of uh, the Sermon on the the Mount. That's yesterday. The Upper Room Discourse. Where am I up to here? Yep. The only other time that Jesus uses that particular word during this whole four chapters of the Upper Room Discourse is back a chapter, chapter 14, verse 17. Have a flick over. Jesus uses that word to abide. Who's he talking about? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Jesus says that the Spirit is abiding with you and then he will be in you. Um, I think that this word that Jesus uses is actually a clue to understanding what Jesus means by abide in me and I will abide in you. He's actually talking about the Holy Spirit abiding in us because the Spirit and Jesus the Son, of course, are two persons of the Trinity. The Spirit is often called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus And what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I will abide in you and you abide in me, he's actually talking about the Holy Spirit's presence within us, even though Jesus himself is gone. So, I can summarise that by saying again, to bear fruit, as Jesus demands of us in the first half of chapter 15, to love one another completely and to be effective in mission, again, has to do with the Holy Spirit abiding within us. So we see that in, verse, in chapters 14 to 16 of John's Gospel and Jesus' last sermon to his disciples before his death, Jesus describes what a Christian seeking first the kingdom looks like. He says, you guys are going to do even greater things than I did. By the way, if you've ever seen someone come to know Jesus, you've actually seen something that Jesus never saw. Okay, that is the greatest miracle. And Jesus didn't see that because his death and resurrection was not completed yet. Okay, salvation was not available in that sense until after he left. Okay, so we have seen greater miracles than what Jesus has seen because the greatest miracle that there is is a change in a human heart that they would come to know Jesus and submit themselves to him and cross from darkness into light and step into the kingdom. Okay, that is the best miracle. That is the greatest miracle. Anyway, a distraction. Um, or sideline even. Jesus also says, do you love me? Well, then you've got to obey me completely. 
I want you to be fruitful. Love one another. And be effective in the mission out there. Teaching, testifying. And oh, by the way, you're going to cop a whole bunch of persecution as you do that. And I want you to persevere in the midst of that persecution. Okay, so he puts these expectations way up there to his disciples. But at every point where he lays out an expectation, he also talks about God's provision for us to meet those expectations. And God's provisions for us is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Meeting Jesus' expectations for our lives is not about just trying harder and gritting your teeth. Okay? That would be a bit like trying to fly by pulling up on your shoe, uh, shoelaces. Right? It's just not going to happen. Okay? It's all about working with the Holy Spirit within us to live up to the expectations that Jesus have, has of us. The Spirit of Christ empowers us to live the life of Christ. Let me give you a couple more examples of where we see that in Scripture. Once upon a time, Jesus trained 12 young guys to share the great news about salvation through Jesus with the world. After his resurrection, Jesus commissioned those early disciples to take that message to the world. He trained them during those years of ministry, and then he commissioned them and said, go for it. But he also said a very strange thing. In Acts 1 verse 4, before Jesus ascends, he says, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. Wait a minute. Didn't he just commission these disciples to get out there and tell everybody and make disciples? And now he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a minute. Don't leave Jerusalem yet. Why? Chapter 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Don't leave Jerusalem until you have the Holy Spirit in you to empower you to do everything I have trained and commanded and commissioned you to do. Don't do it quite yet. Wait. Okay, kind of a don't leave home without the Holy Spirit. Because we cannot do, we cannot... Witness to Jesus effectively, we cannot live up to the expectations that Jesus has for us unless we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish and achieve those expectations. What about more generally, living a kingdom life? Galatians. Paul wrote to Galatians because the church which God had planted through him there had come under the influence of some Jewish false teachers. Those teachers said, well, yeah, yeah, you come to salvation by faith in Jesus. Okay. But after that, you live a life pleasing to God by obeying the Mosaic law that we Jews have. So you've got to get circumcised. You've got to make sacrifices. You've got to obey the moral and ritual laws of the Old Testament. That's how you live a life pleasing to God. That's what they were teaching, uh, these young churches, including the Galatian church. And Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to combat that false teaching. And in chapter 3, get this, you, you can hear um, Paul's emotion here. What is that emotion? You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? There's this sense of, that's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Who'd try and do that? What is the solution that Paul puts forward 
to live the Christian life or over in chapter 5, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If you want to live a godly life, if you want to seek first the kingdom, you need the Spirit. He brings his fruit into our lives, whether that's in our witness, our character, our love for God, our love for each other. We are to live by the Spirit in order to change. Well, how does that work? What does that actually look like? You know, we often hear those phrases like live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, depend on the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean day to day? What does it mean when I can feel my anger levels rising when I look at my kids' messy room? What does it mean when I set some goals to change something in my own character, to overcome some sin in my life, and I try to do that? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit in those situations? Does it kind of just mean I just let go and let God sort of thing? He's going to do it all? Take five deep breaths. <laughs> Take five deep breaths is a good start. Um, so far, the verses I've looked at in John, Acts and Galatians, they focus on the work of the Spirit and what he does. You know, there's actually a part that we do as well. It's a partnership. How do we fit those verses with things like 1 Corinthians 9? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run and only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Or what about Philippians 3, 12 to 14? Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, one thing, Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. These verses give us a glimpse into Paul and they show intentionality. They show discipline and effort. Paul is striving towards his goals of knowing Christ better and serving him better. Well, how do we put those two sets of scriptures together? Now, those two verses there out of Paul's writings, together with John 14 to, to 16. Is it us or is it the Spirit who brings about change? Actually, it's both. Those verses, um, when we, <coughs> excuse me, whether we're trying to overcome a sin Disciplining ourselves to spend time with God, seeking greater patience or self-control, trying to share Christ with someone, build a spiritual movement that we call a church. The first step of any of those activities or goals or hopes is actually to want to do it, isn't it? To want to do this thing. It's a choice. I want to put the effort in to see this thing happen because it's a good thing. Well, that's our part to choose and to want to go there. It's why there are commands in Scripture. God expects us to choose to obey what he says, right? He will not make us obedient or godly against our will. But when we do choose to put in our effort to obey God in what he says for us to do, to try and meet his expectations, we usually find that our efforts simply aren't enough. And that 
is where the Holy Spirit steps in. Not for the first time. He's actually part of us wanting to obey Jesus. Uh, But the Spirit steps in at this point to supply the power to overcome our sinful nature, to actually obey, to change, to share Christ, whatever. Not only that, the Spirit continues with us to teach us more of what God expects of us. He encourages us to keep going when it's tough. He will convict us when we stuff up. He will lead us to repentance. He is actually the greatest coach, motivator, teacher, friend, and source of power that God could possibly provide for us, his children, because he is God. The Spirit is God. He's God within us. He empowers us to seek first the kingdom and to live a kingdom life. This is really important to get a hold of, this partnership concept between us and the Spirit. So I'm actually going to give you a couple of different ways to remember how this partnership works. Let me start with an illustration, just a spoken illustration. Some of you might remember. It was probably forgettable, but I had my arm in a sling last night in our little competition last night about dressing up as a five-year-old. Because back when I was five, I broke my arm. I actually clearly remember one of the first days back at school after breaking my arm. Our teacher was training us to write the letter O. It's pretty simple, just a circle. Okay? So she told us each to write O a number of times on our papers. Now, my broken arm was my right arm, which is my writing arm. Okay, so I have a great cast there. But, uh, you know, she was telling us to write a no, and I wanted to obey my teacher. And, uh, and so I wanted to write a no. So I picked up the pencil, I put the pencil nib onto the paper, and I tried to write an O. But I just couldn't do it. The cast did not allow me the flexibility and the control to actually write an O, to draw a circle. Now, our teacher came around the class checking on how we were doing, and when she got to me, there was just a bunch of squiggles on that piece of paper, (laughs) not a circle amongst them. But she could also plainly see that my arm was in a cast. So what do you think my teacher said to me at that point? Maybe, come on, Andrew, try harder, just get in there, do it! No. (laughs) No. Maybe, oh, Andrew, you idiot, you've got a broken arm. Give up. No. Actually, I don't remember her saying anything. What she did was reach from behind and above me, took my hand, pencil and all, in her hand, put it on the piece of paper, and together we wrote an O. I had the will to do it, but I was incapable. My teacher provided the empowering, the encouragement, the guidance to actually make it happen. And that is exactly how it is with the Spirit. Jesus called the Spirit the paraclete in the original language. It's usually uh, translated comforter, and that's a pretty good translation. But the word literally means one who comes alongside. What a beautiful picture of our partnership with the Spirit to achieve his will with our lives. One who comes alongside and empowers and encourages and teaches and trains. So when we try and live the kingdom life to reflect his character, to share the kingdom with others, we must partner with God himself who is within each of us as the Holy Spirit. He wants you to grow. He wants you to experience deeper intimacy with him, to reflect his character more, to share about him with others. Our part is to choose to obey, to be intentional and disciplined where we can, like Paul, but it is the Spirit who provides the real power to make it happen. Okay, let's get even more practical. How do we partner with the Spirit in practice? Like like any relationship, it's all about communication. Okay, and communication with God, well, that means prayer. So, here's a few suggested things you can pray to partner with the Spirit. First of all, confess your sin. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, that's a great starting point. I had to admit in trying to write an O that I could not. I am incapable. We need to admit that we cannot obey Jesus the way he expects of us. Our sinfulness gets in the way. We need to admit our failings. We need to confess our sins and be cleansed by the power of God to walk with him. So start by confessing your sin, then listen to the Spirit. I had to listen to the teacher to know what she expected me to do, to write an O, not an H, not a K, an O. So listen. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus' teachings to you, to work in and through you. Well, how does the Spirit reveal the teachings of Jesus to us? The Bible. Okay? That's the main way. So get stuck into the Bible. Listen to sermons, read it, challenge one another with Scripture. Because Scripture is the language of the Spirit. It is Scripture which the Spirit brings to our minds when he wants to change something within us or do something through us. And then lastly, obey in the Spirit's power. I had to let my teacher control my arm to write a no. I could have resisted, could have bucked and kicked, and <laughs> but I yielded. And together we had success. Yield control of our lives, our character, our fruitfulness, our actions to the Spirit. Ask for his empowering and then step out to live the kingdom life. Okay. That's an illustration, the, the writing an O. Let me give you a second way to remember how this partnership with the Spirit works. It's a diagram for those who are more visual. <clears throat> this circle uh, represents a person's life. And we might call this type of person a Jesus-centered person, a spiritual person. The chair represents the kind of control seat of a person's life. Who's calling the shots? Who's directing this person's life? The cross, of course, is Jesus. And the S stands for self. So you can see in this person's life, Jesus is calling the shots. He's in control here. The self, the S, is at the foot of the chair, the throne of this person's life. Uh, they are submitted to Christ. This is what we should all be and should all be all the time. Jesus is in control, directing and empowering us by his spirit. We're aware of God's holiness. We walk in reverential fear. Life is ordered because we have Jesus' priorities, not our own. We're able to seek first the kingdom. We're able to speak out the kingdom. Now, just for a moment, pause there. You know yourself. I know myself. And yet we're also talking about God who is holy and loving he is infinitely smart and infinitely powerful. Who would you really rather run your life? You or God? I pick God. It is the way to do life. Okay, this second circle illustrates perhaps what we might call the self-centered Christian. This person is a Christian but they've taken back control of their lives. Christianity is part of their life, but Jesus is not actually the boss moment to moment. They're not seeking first the kingdom, but they're prioritising worldly pleasures, worldly aims. We become this type of Christian actually every time we sin. When we think or say or do something that is not what God desires of us. In other words, we take control back of our lives. So we become self-centred. Well, this third diagram kind of shows the whole Christian life. There's actually a state of flux between these two situations. Whenever we sin, you get tricky here, I'm going to use a laser pointer. Um, when we sin, we become a self-centered Christian. We get back to being Christ-centered by repenting, by turning away from sin and handing back control of all of our lives to Jesus. Now, spiritual breathing on that pathway to the right is just a handy word picture illustrating that process. See, when you physically exhale, you get rid of impure air, right? And then you inhale, breathing in pure air, unless you're jogging along one of the Brisbane streets. 
but purer air. Spiritually, it works the same way. Breathe out the sin in your life by repenting of sin. Agree with God that specific thoughts and words and actions are sin. Ask for his forgiveness, which he always gives. Then inhale. Accept the Holy Spirit as boss of your life again. Now, that's not inhaling the Holy Spirit. It's not more of him in your life. That's bad theology. But it's yielding control of your life to the Holy Spirit who does dwell within you. It's asking him to direct and empower you more fully to overcome temptation in the future. Now, becoming a more, a more mature Christian is all about spending more and more time over here and less and less time over here and actually sinning less and obeying God more. Now, we're actually going to take a couple of minutes. We're getting towards the end here, but I want to take a couple of minutes right now for you to put this into practice. I want you to actually ask the Spirit to convict you, to put his finger on sin within your life and confess that sin. Okay? Um, I've just realised I was going to bring a ream of paper and you could actually write that down and I completely forgot about it. So we won't go there. Uh, that was supposed to be the, the kind of tactile experience. <laughs> um, but one, you can do this exercise by actually writing out those sins that the Holy Spirit puts on your heart. Okay? And then write 1 John 1 9 across those as you confess them and ask for God's forgiveness. If we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The fun part of this physical exercise, if you were to write those sins down and then write 1 John 1 across it, you can then rip it up, destroy it, burn it, whatever you want to do, as a symbol of what God does with our sin. Destroys it. It's gone. Okay. Let's pause and take a minute just to confess before God and to ask his Holy Spirit who dwells within us to once more control our lives, empower our lives, to live the Christian life, to seek first the kingdom. Now let me be clear and honest here. Um, I struggle with this. The spiritual breathing exercise is actually something that I've been doing at least daily for 30 years as a Christian. But living the Christian life and walking in the Spirit is something that I struggle with. One of my frontiers in walking in the Spirit is patience. I used to think I was a patient guy, and then I had kids. <laughs> now, my kids are great. <laughs> my kids are great. But my expectations of them sometimes are too high. Or they just get distracted. Or they're simply being childish, which is actually okay for children. <laughs> So when they don't tidy their room to my standard after the third time of asking them, I feel angry. But where is the spirit in such anger? No, 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 that's, that's actually just my self-centeredness in action. Wanting the world to be as I want it to be for my sake. It is the times when I face situations like that and I stop and I pray and I choose to obey the Spirit and be patient, and the Spirit, not steps into my life, empowers me to be patient. And I engage with my kids patiently. It's in those times that I best use those teachable moments and can speak into their lives and help them be more tidy, but without yelling at them, for their good. And it becomes all about them and their growth towards godliness. It's not about me anymore. That is walking in the spirit. And I struggle with that. And yet God is at work and I see that happening more and more often. Which is only God's grace. What about you? What do you struggle with in walking in the spirit? In seeking first the kingdom? Living the Christian life that Jesus expects of us. You know, transformation isn't instantaneous most of the time, but by the Spirit's power, it can and will happen. We can live up to Jesus' expectations. 
So as we wrap up, I want to get really practical one more time. I want you to think back over our time together this weekend. I want you to pray and ask the Spirit to bring to your mind one thing that he wants you to work on. And that might be something out of yesterday's talk about getting into spiritual conversations and speaking out the kingdom so that others come into the kingdom. But it might be something you've heard in sermons about seeking first the kingdom in the past months, something about our character, our behaviour, extending mercy to others, living out one of the other Beatitudes. Um, it might be building in this habit of spiritual breathing into your times with God. Something to more fully seek first the kingdom, to live out kingdom life. Now, you may have seen this acronym before as we kind of set goals. It's wise, it's smart to make them certain types of goals. Specific, measurable, agreed upon if there are others involved in achieving it, realistic and time-based. So in other words, don't say, I want to do more evangelism. How general is that? How do you know when you've achieved that? What does it mean to actually do that? I don't know. But what about pray each day this week even for an opportunity to talk about Jesus? Okay, now that's a specific goal. You know you can tick that off when you've done that that day. Okay, but it is moving you into doing more evangelism. So get specific, get time-based, okay? It might be practice spiritual breathing three times this week. Whatever it is, I want you to pray and you to think about and set one goal for this next week, not for the year, just this next week. Okay? And ask the Spirit to empower you to achieve that goal this week. Okay, I'll give you a minute to think that through and pray. When you've thought of that goal, I would encourage you to solidify that somehow, perhaps by writing it down. If you have a journal, write it up the top of the next page. Um, tell somebody about it. Tell your spouse, tell a friend, hey, this is what I've set as a goal for this week. Could you pray for me in it? Solidify it somehow. Just a bit more time. <coughs> Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here amidst us. You dwell within each of us. That is just astounding. And thank you that you call us to meet the expectations that Jesus laid out for us in Scripture, to seek first the kingdom, to be righteous, to speak out the kingdom so that others come into the kingdom, to partner with you in this work of growing the kingdom. What purpose that brings to our lives. But Holy Spirit, please... Don't let us fall into the trap of trying to do it on our own. How arrogant. Instead, keep us humble. Keep us dependent upon you. Teach us. Train us in how to walk with you so that we do our part, we allow you to do yours, and together we achieve your will in this world and build your kingdom for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Andrew.